You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging, to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the lovely Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? Oh, apparently I'm lovely, so that's good. That's a great way to start the day. How are you, Valerie? Good, are you good. lovely as well? Uh, of course, oh, always, always. What have you been up to? <laughs> um, well, I've uh, finished the first draft of book two of my series, and so I'm having a little bit of a rest from it, and I am, I've begun reading it, which is always interesting, but I'm also... I'm filling my life with reading other people's work, which I'm absolutely loving. I've been through about three books in the last four days, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm, binge, I'm binge reading. You know how people binge watch TV box sets? Well, I'm yeah. binge reading. What about you? Um, what have I been doing? I have been doing a little bit of reading. My, my current morning ritual is to read a little bit about um, out of a book called Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. And um, it's fascinating because it's – I haven't finished yet. I kind of just smack on it um, <clears throat> because it's kind of just little uh, – little vignettes about how different artists have a routine in their life, their daily rituals. And it kind of puts out this idea that you definitely need routine and ritual, which is another word for discipline really, um, to in order to succeed creatively. So that's been quite fascinating. When I finish it, I'll um, we can talk about it a bit more. I look forward to it. Maybe you can send it to me and I'll read it. I, um, I did read about that book um, a little while ago and I believe it's another one of those did it not start as a blog? Did it grow out of a blog as well? I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I've got a feeling it may have done, but um, I have seen bits and pieces of it around, and I, I find it fascinating. I love seeing how other people work, and I think that what it all, it also kind of reinforces for you is that there is no one way to do it. When you're an artist, like you have to do whatever works for you, which I think is is um, is a good lesson to learn. The other thing I've been doing, and I. I thought I'd mention it because it's been on my mind, is um, I don't know if you've been watching Puberty Blues, but I've been watching Puberty Blues. Have you been watching it? Right. No, I haven't been watching it. You are missing out. This I is know. Like, people keep telling me that. Yeah, this is your childhood. This is growing up in the 70s. It's, I think that's why I don't. I think that's why I don't watch it. I think I lived it and therefore I don't need to watch it. Well, I love it because not only is it growing up in the 70s, it's growing up in the 70s in the Shire. That's the Sutherland Shire, which in, which is where I grew up. So um, it's just fascinating seeing all of the things that are just so exactly like how I remembered. You know, your friends' parents, parents behaved in the way the parents behave in Puberty Blues, and it just takes you back. But something happened in the episode that I watched last night which kind of was really jarring for me, and I think it's really applicable to the world of writing as well. And that's um, Claudia Carvin's character was talking to her son, and he had those one of those Commonwealth Bank passbooks. Um, yeah. Do you remember those? Did you have one of those? I do. 
I did. Didn't everyone? And one of those little money boxes that went with it? Yeah, exactly. Everyone had one and everyone remembers what it looked like. But she said to her son, um, you know, what, what are you doing with your Dolomite account? And I kind of, something inside me was just jarred because I don't remember calling it a Dolomite account. And, um, no. And uh, and I did, did look it up, and from what I could find, it started in 1998. And in fact, <laughs> Commonwealth Bank didn't apply for a trademark for the Dolomite for the word Dolomite until the year 2000. So it was really incongruous, and it kind of was like a little dint in the credibility of. Um, of the the show show because there was no such thing as a Dolomite account in my research anyway. I'm happy to be proved wrong um, in the 70s. And that's something that happens as well in novels and in, you know, in the books that we read is that sometimes you can be so absorbed and be taken away on this amazing story and some little fact like that can just jump out at you and scream, this this is just not real and it just jolts you out of this otherwise mesmerizing experience and you know I remember reading a book once that I was absolutely riveted by and um, then it made reference to the HSC in Malaysia and I was convinced that there was no HSC in Malaysia there's no even HSC in the state of Victoria here it's VCE so um It's just those little things that we need to be so careful of, right? Um, especially in like a book that you're doing, you know, map makers, for example. <laughs> Do you yes. find that you need to research those little details so that you don't jar the reader out of, you know, in, 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 a, in put them in a bit of shock? I do. Like it's put it this way, it's a it is a fantasy world. So while it can does contain facts about how maps were made and how how they navigated in those days and and that sort of stuff. It's very much set in an alternate universe. So it's not, it's not. I'm not aiming to be real, which mm. I think is, but it is based in reality. And I think in some ways that's um, that is equally difficult. But what I find with my particular thing is I'm doing a lot of world building. I'm creating my own world, and it's really really important for me to keep track of what what that they use for money, how they talk about length, how they discuss time, how they – I've actually got um, a folder and in that folder I have just got lists and lists and lists of things of, you know, what, what exactly did they use, how did they describe the farm implement, what did they do for this, what did they do for that, um, so that I can keep track of what I've been saying um, mm. and, and don't, as you say, jar the reader. I don't, want to, I don't want to suddenly drop a dollar in there. Do you know what I mean? When mm. they've never used a dollar. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, um, those kinds of things are important. But what I think is really interesting about this, Val, is that you went and researched the Dolomite account. I find that absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And that is a real insight into how your mind works. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be looking out for them now, knowing that you'll be out there Googling everything I write. Fascinating. All right. What else have you got to tell us? <laughs> well, I suppose that's why, you know, it's those sort of little things that make you a decent sub-editor when you have to check those little things. It's so true. It is. And, and actually, and it is one of those things too, as a writer, you really hope that there is someone like Val on your editing team <laughs> putting their hand up saying, I'm sorry, there was no Dolomite. You can't be using that. <laughs> you need an eagle eye. Someone's got to spot that stuff. <laughs> well, actually, that uh, book that I did read that referred to the HSC in Malaysia, I was sent a um, 
pre you know a, a proof copy of that and so oh. um i actually did tell the publishers and they never bothered to change it which was interesting um oh, but anyway let's move on to some news um I thought an interesting article that I read this week was by a guy called Steve Buttery, and he he wrote an article um, on why when you're fired, it's helped, it's useful to be on Twitter. It's called Why Journalists Should Use Twitter. When you're fired, it helps with encouragement and actual job prospects. Okay. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that's a great reason that you should be on Twitter because hopefully you're not going to get fired. But it made me, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but it made me kind of think, well, do you think journalists should be on Twitter? And if so, why? And what would they be using it for? Well, it's an interesting thing that you ask that. I I think, well, for, look, I can only speak from my own perspective. As a freelance writer, I find Twitter absolutely invaluable. He talks in here about how it helps with encouragement and job prospects. I don't think I've ever got a job through Twitter, mm-hmm. but I can honestly say that the support and the that sort of thing that I get from Twitter is incredible. And also, like, access to case studies and things like that. It's very, very useful for me from that perspective. I, um, you know, if I tweet that I'm looking for something in particular, I can pretty much guarantee that someone's going to put their hand up and say, oh, I know that person. You know what I mean? Um, So from that perspective, I guess, yes. I mean, you notice that most TV journalists these days will have their Twitter handle under their face Mm. on the, uh, you know, when they're on the news and stuff like that. Um, Does it help with that? I, I don't know. Do people get in touch with them regarding stories? I'm not exactly sure. I do think that, you know, when you're in the sort of industry that we're in, a profile never hurts. And that's, I guess, Twitter helps with that in it with a great deal. Um, I agree so, with that, but what I think that um, it doesn't work is when you have the newsreaders or whoever who shout out their Twitter handle and then you go to their Twitter profile and they tweet maybe, oh, you know, once every two weeks, if that. It can't, yeah. I think it then makes them lose a little bit of credibility because they're shouting out this, this you know, tool that people can, that they're saying that they use, but actually they don't use it. No, that well, that's true of anything, isn't it? I mean, it's it's like, you know, authors having blogs that they never update and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's all those sorts of things. I think if you're going to do this kind of stuff, then you have to you have to do it. You have yeah. to be consistent. Yeah. Even if you're only going to tweet once a week, make it, you know, once a week and, and, and do it like that. Um, but I, I, I suspect it's also, it's a network thing. You know, they all, they've all got to have a Twitter handle mm-hmm. and, and yes. not everyone's comfortable with it because at the end of the day, like, I mean, look at that situation with Joe Hildebrand a couple of weeks ago. He had that conversation um, with uh, Rose, I think Rose Batty it was, mm-hmm. about, you know, about children and domestic violence and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, he's, he's, very, he's an absolutely avid user of Twitter. Well, he was hammered. Mm. All over, all over social media, um, and th- there were long silences from Joe, which is unusual. But then he did come back, and he, you know, he sort of, you know, used his used his presence to, I guess, um, defend his position or whatever. But I think that those social media storms are why a lot of journalists stay away from it or don't yeah. use it that often. Um, I guess it's like anything. It's it's like you know, if you're going to do it you need to have a sort of PR strategy almost for yourself as to how you're going to manage if something like that happens. Yeah, definitely. Um, What Mm. else is happening in the writing world this week? Well, uh, the shortlist for the uh, Children's Book Council of Australia Awards um, for 2014 has been released and um, I think it's worth us 
having a look at that. It's obviously awards season mm. and there's a lot of fabulous books on there. And the reason that I find it really fascinating is, of course, that our own Kathy Tasco, who is the who is one of the Writers' Centre um, presenters and, and course producers, et cetera, is, is one of the judges. So I always take a great deal of interest in this and I love it because every year she, she will put up a photograph of herself surrounded by the 150 books or whatever it is that she has read to get, you know, to the shortlist. And I, I think it's worth um, noting that the judges do read these things, you know. It's not just a matter of somebody pulling a, a book out of the sky and saying, we should do this one this year, you know what I mean? Um, they are reading their way through 150 books to make decisions about, what, about what's going to be shortlisted and what isn't. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was, um, that was good. And I think that the books, you know, Australia is, is really in the middle of a fantastic surge of YA and children's books at the moment, and I think it's really worth um, having a look at those and supporting them. And it's really bizarre. It's all very cloak and dagger because um, Kathy Tasker, who, as you mentioned, is a presenter at the Writer Centre, she teaches writing books for children uh, and she teaches in the online version as well as the classroom version. Um, she she was emailing um, prior to, you know, being locked away with her 150 books because that's exactly what happens. She They go into lockdown. They can't have any contact with, you know, the, the world or the, the internet or, or anything like that. And um, she has to not have any contact with us just for the period that she's uh, judging the books. It's all very, um, it's all very secretive and cloak and dagger. Wow. She probably drinks a lot of coffee. And a lot of coffee, yes. And as you say, it is award season. But isn't it, it's, you know, award season here is nothing like, you know, the Oscars or anything. I kind of wish sometimes we had opportunities to get dressed up and be presented with a nice little (laughs) gold statue or something but anyway what what else um uh is happening in awards season well the um shortlist for the 2014 new south wales premiers literary awards has also been announced Mm. and um it's quite interesting of course because with these uh awards you often notice that you're seeing the same books over and over again obviously Mm -hmm. um like the night guest by fiona mcfarlane um which is a debut novelist that's appeared on the miles franklin long list is also shortlisted for the Glenda Adams Award for New Writing. And then, you know, you've got sort of quite the there's sort of patterns. You're starting to see the books that, you know, those in the know, the awards judges and awards people, are starting to see um, what's um, the books that they have decided are the books of the year and, and they are similar all mm, the time. Mm. And um, that- which... I guess I mean I guess that makes sense. I mean if it's if it's a quality book it's going to be a quality book on any awards list, isn't it? Mm. And have some of those books jumped out at you as ones that you that are some of your favorites? Well, I to be honest with you, I've I haven't read a lot of them and I think that's one one of the reasons I do like awards lists is because um often they bring to attention um, books that I would probably not have seen, would probably have overlooked for whatever reason. But I know that, that The Night Guest by Fiona McFarlane, which I mentioned before, is one that has um, started to be talked about. People are starting, people are reading it and starting to tell me, oh, you must read this book, you must read this book, mm. it's fantastic. Um, so it, it's a book that I'll definitely have a look at and perhaps, you know, we'll now put into the Pink Fibre Book Club list for, mm. you know, the, the next couple of months, um, those kinds of things. The other one that a lot of people have been talking about um, is Boy Lost by Christina Olsen, which is which is kind of a memoir, but it's a memoir of her mother almost. Mm. Um, that's been discussed quite a lot um, and it's sort of starting to come through against um, 
in all those awards lists as well. So I guess what it, I mean, you know, we talked, I think it was a couple of episodes ago about the fact that you're saying that, um, you know, if you win awards, Mm. you, you don't actually see a correlation in book sales, but being on a list you know, is very helpful. And I have to say that I think that that's true. It's actually not that you don't see a correlation with book sales. You don't necessarily see more positive reviews. You pro- you proportionately get more reviews. negative reviews. Yes, that's right. Sorry, I, mm. I, I'd forgotten that. Um, but also like My Life as an Alphabet by Barry Johnsberg, which is a book um, that we've just featured on the Writer Centre blog, is is also shortlisted here, is shortlisted for the CBCA Awards. Um, would never, I would never have seen that book had it not been yeah. on an awards list. And so I think that, you know, it's it's a great boost for quality fiction and I think that's a great thing. And I think what's interesting is that The Guardian has now released another kind of award this month. Um, They've announced it this month. But this one's specifically for self-published books because a lot of self-published books don't get a look-in in the traditional awards at all. Um, typically right. they have to be published by a mainstream publisher but with so many more books being self-published these days uh, it's it's interesting that the Guardian have recognized that and they are now putting forward a, um, a, a you know a prize for self-published books is that right it's an all-new monthly literary prize for self published authors. Um, So the Guardian has joined forces with Legend Times and the plan is that they're going to find the best self-published novels in any genre every single month, which I think is a massive ask Mm. um, given the number of books that are self-published. But the basic plan is that people will, I think, submit. They're going to nominate their books and the um, submissions are open for the first two weeks of every month and then the panel from the Guardian and Legends is going to go through and they're going to discover the best of those self-published books each and every month. And I think um, it's one of those situations where obviously self-published authors are looking for recognition because, yes. you know, there are some some big names that have, have self-published and have done extremely well out of it. Mm. Um, but um, I think that it's it's like anything. It's like the award, you know, I was just when we were talking about the awards earlier, like there are books on that list that I would not have discovered in mm. another way. And so this will, I think, help with the discoverability aspect of self-published books because, mm. you know, they're saying um, in the article that some 391,000 books were self-published in the US alone <laughs> last year. Goodness. So me. if you're self-publishing, how do you get yourself, you know, how, how does anyone find you? And I think the plan is that this will help. So um, what do you think about that? Do you think it's a, a good idea? I think it's a good idea because it's basically recognising a trend and it's recognising the fact there there are huge numbers of self-published books out there. And the the reality is that there are some really good self-published books that deserve to be discovered and there's some really bad ones as well. And um, hopefully this highlights the the really good ones and the cream will rise to the top. Um, To the top. Would you like to be on that panel? Having to having to wade through them every single month to find the award winner. I wouldn't mind doing the short list, but I don't know about <laughs> doing the uh, long list. But speaking of books, one book that is definitely going to get a lot of um, coverage and no doubt make a lot of sales is Bob Carr's latest book, his memoir, and it's just kind of hilarious. I mean, people have had a field day in pulling out some of his. Um, classic quotes and he has said um, uh, 
um, that he he recalls when he the, the words of late novelist Gore Vidal when um, you know reflecting on his stature among world leaders he says I cannot feel humble interested curious of course just not humble <laughs> it's definitely not a humble guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's um no. he's he said things like I'm the best chairman I know <laughs> when referring <laughs> to chairing a meeting, um and uh, also when he you know has to do a lot of media interviews he says he says in the book I have more energy than sixteen gladiators. <laughs> um, the ego has risen. Yes, exactly. The ego has risen. And certainly there's no doubt Bob Carr has a way with words. He used to be a journalist and he can definitely write. But when you are writing a memoir, it's so easy to cross that line of, of navel-gazing, of um, ego puffing. And um, it's one of the hardest things to do because just because you find that you did something interesting, and that is whether you're writing a memoir about yourself or, or even if you're writing, say, the memoir for your father or your grandfather or grandmother, uh, it, there's some things that you might find interesting, but unless you can find a way to make it interesting to um, a third party, a reader, then it's just not going to work in a book. And it's one of the it's, – it's, it's a very fine line when, when writing memoir. Have you ever tried to write memoir? No, no. I think the closest thing I've ever come to writing memoir is is my blog. Mm. And, I, you know, when I was writing it every day, it was probably a, like I, I, it was a lot more like small detail stuff. I used to focus a lot more on small details because that's what you do when you have to write every day. Mm. Um, I was approached at one stage to write a memoir um, mm. just based on that blog. And I decided against it because to me – um, a memoir of my life, as it is at the moment, um, touches way too much on other people's lives, mm. uh, my family and things like that. And I just am not interested in in sort of revealing. I think I'm just not interested in revealing that much about myself. A yep. and B. I just I'm not exactly. I'm not Bob Carr. I'm not entirely convinced I'm that interesting. So I think, you know, I think you basically, I think a lot of people think about writing a memoir and I think the biggest problem with a memoir is what do you leave out? Yeah. It's actually more more of a of a pressing question than what do you put in yeah. from my perspective. And I also think that every person who attempts a memoir needs a great relationship with a good editor personally. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? I mean, would you write a memoir? Um, I think that I'm the same as you in that there's a lot of my life that I don't necessarily want to lay all out there. And it's interesting mm. that you've said that you were approached because I was approached to write a memoir as well for a certain period of my life where I was doing a lot of work um, in third world countries. And uh, yeah. it was um, – I kind of had a go to see whether to see what it would, would be like, because um, you know, as a writer, you just want to do this as a bit of an exercise. And I realised that too. I realised that I, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't want to necessarily reveal about myself, about the you know things that I've been through, about um, and, but and it's it is that raw stuff that actually people relate to. It's that raw stuff exactly. that resonates with people. And yeah. I wasn't prepared to lay it all on the table. So no, because that's what people want. They want the they want the stuff that you don't necessarily reveal in day to day, you know, transactions, so yeah. to speak. And and that's the stuff that you've got to be comfortable throwing to the wolves. Yes. <laughs> and well, if anyone, I've got any deep dire secrets. I mean, <laughs> no. I wish I did, but you know. <laughs> 
Maybe I should get some and then write a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) I think that um, anyone interested in writing memoir, there's a couple of great books. Um, One is Patty Miller's book called Writing Your Life. And um, she's also uh, written the memoir book, but I strongly suggest that you start with Writing Your Life, which was actually the first one, um, before progressing on to the memoir book. And Patty Miller, of course, teaches life writing at the Australian Writers' Centre. And, um, you know, she's she's amazing. She's mentored many memoirs to, um, to publication. Um, and, uh, you know, we've spoken about Gina Lee's book, Call Me Sasha. That started off, um, you know, because Gina did a course with... Uh, um, with Patty and uh, writing your life is a fantastic book that can help you on that journey if you're not you know in a position to, to do a course um, you know have a have a look at the book yes definitely um, okay so what have we what's happening in the world of blogs this week well the world of blogs well um, I came across a, a great little post on a blog called the wall which is, you know, pretty good for a blog, really. Um, And it is the ideal length of everything online. And it's a little infograph and it shows you exactly what, you know, curated from a whole range of different blog posts and a whole range of different things. And it says that, you know, basically if you are going to have a tweet, it should be 100 characters, allowing room for people to retweet. If you are going to have a domain name, it should be eight characters which doesn't sort of leave me with much given that my name is Alison Tate and that is more than eight characters. If you are going to have a, Google, they're probably all taken eight character. Probably. If you're going to have a headline, it should be six words, you know, five tips for writing everything kind of stuff. And if you are going to have a, and this was the one that got me, if you're going to have a Facebook post, it should be under 40 characters. That's insane. Now, I tried to write the ideal Facebook post is under 40 characters on my Facebook wall and that was more than 40 characters. So I'm feeling that's a little bit limiting myself and I don't, you know, I mean, what do you think, what do you think about the ideal length of stuff? Well, for something like Twitter, I agree because you're actually limited. <laughs> um, yeah. But one thing that I don't agree with that I see bandied about is the length of blog posts. And people often say, oh, it should be 400 words or thereabouts. And, you know, I think that a blog post should be as long as it needs to be. But people often write too much because they don't realise that they're being repetitive or they're being too perverse or they can cut a lot of fat. But I've read heaps of blog posts that are 3,000 words that that go for pages that are really long, but every word has counted. So I don't agree that you should always stick to a certain number of words in a blog post. I think as long as it's well-written, as long as it's tight, as long as it's to the point, it should be however long it it needs to be. Well, that's interesting because according to this infographic, the ideal length of a blog post is actually seven minutes or 1,600 words. It focuses basically not on clicks but on attention. How long will readers stick with an article? And they're saying that, that readers will stick with an article for seven minutes, which I think is interesting because um, I don't necessarily agree that I would stick with an article for seven, the blog yeah. post for seven minutes. It would have to be good. That's longer than I expected. Well, I, th- I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to how good your post is. You know, it doesn't matter how long it is, as long as it's good, mm. then people will stay with you, as exactly what you said. 
Okay, well, with um, let's move on then to our writer in residence this week. We've got something a little bit different this week. I've interviewed Kate Garclaves from Scripted.com. She's the editorial analyst at Scripted.com, and I think this will be a particularly interesting one for our listeners because, uh, and it will probably cause a little bit of controversy as well. Now, Scripted is basically a provider of written content. So if you are a business or a blogger, and you're kind of like don't want to do all the writing you go to scripted and you can you can upload your brief so so you can basically say I want to write a blog post on back pain or I want to write write a um an article on uh getting fit or whatever it is and you put that brief to scripted and they then find and get if they find the writer and they um, the writer writes it, you actually never get to meet the writer, which is interesting, and you're provided with that content. And um, then you can edit it or you can say, look, I, I want this change, this change, this change. There's one round of edits included and then you get the final product. Uh, so this may seem like a wonderful opportunity, but I think what listeners will find interesting is the rate of pay. So let's mm. um, listen to Kate Garclaves from scripted.com. And I'm talking to Kate Garclaves, the editorial analyst at scripted.com. Thanks for joining us today, Kate. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very intrigued about what Scripted does. Can you just describe in a nutshell what Scripted.com is all about? Definitely. So, um, many uh, many of your listeners may have heard of us, but for those who haven't, um, Scripted is a platform that automatically matches our freelance writers with clients who are in need of top quality content. Um, and what this allows writers to do is submit their work directly to the client um, using our, our platform. So there's no direct interaction between, uh, between the writers and the client. Um, so our system allows writers to claim jobs for which they're qualified um, and, you know, which match their interests. And this really just saves our writers the hassle of finding and vetting clients, you know, tracking people down, requesting payment, things of that nature. So um, it really just, you know, streamlines the freelance process for writers um, and also, you know, allows clients to more easily acquire high quality content. So I, I know that for a lot of writers, the actual writing part is what they love and the dealing with the client is not that exciting. Um, so uh, what kind of clients, and you take that element out of it because you're actually the middle platform or middle person between the writer and the client and the, mm-hmm. the writer never has to meet the client. But what kind of clients are they? What kind of jobs are they? So actually, um, you know, like our, our writers, our clients are really diverse. Um, we have everything from, you know, very small um, businesses, medium-sized businesses, and, and also some enterprise clients. So um, really, you know, goes across the whole the whole range. Um, most of our clients are marketers who are looking for um, for content for various marketing initiatives. You know, people are coming to realize that um, the best way to connect with um, with potential customers and with your audience is through telling a really compelling story and just having top notch writing. So um, that's what all of our clients have in common is you know the desire for really great content. But you know, in terms of of business size, it really just um, ranges. Um, in terms of you know different verticals, we you know offer jobs across all different verticals. You know, we have um, currently a, a great demand for lifestyle and travel writers. Um, we you know get lots of requests for business writing, technology focused writing, you know sales, 
um, you know, basically you name it, we, we get requests for it. So, um, it's, it's really diverse and that's, you know, what makes it so exciting is that we're, you know, working in all these different verticals. So you talk about the clients wanting content, but what is the most popular type of content that they're looking for so that listeners can get an idea of what content you're actually talking about? Sure. So um, that's actually a very good question. Um, our, I guess our most popular forms um, are really blog posts, you know, both both long and short, um, and also white papers. But, um, you know, we do offer other types of content, you know, newsletters, um, batches of tweets, Facebook posts, um, you know, th- things of that nature. But really, the blog posts and the, and the white papers are um, are very popular. So typically, the writers are producing blog posts on, as you say, specific um, industry areas like lifestyle or travel or business or whatever. Yes. So your um, scripted.com is based in San Francisco, and I understand that you've got over 80,000 bloggers and writers on your books. Is that right? We actually have um, what we consider a network of 80,000 um, you know, our, our active population is a bit smaller than that, but um, I don't know if, if you're familiar with our, you know, kind of origin story, but... Um, Tell me. We, yeah, I was going to say, we pivoted from, um, from Script. Um, that was our, our founder's first company, um, and Script has 80,000 in that, in their database, um, in their, I guess, their membership base. Um, what and was then, Script? So Script was, um, was a screenwriting company, um, and, you know, our founders, Sunil and Ryan, um, were really into into screenwriting. They started Script, um, and what they found was a lot of um, a lot of businesses were approaching them and asking whether um, the screenwriters with Script could write, um, you know, marketing materials. So then from from there, Sunil and Ryan thought, okay, there's there's really a demand for you know great writing. And then from there, they pivoted and, and founded Scripted. But um, that's kind of that's you know how we got started. You know, people were approaching um, Script and, and Ryan and Sunil for content, and then they just they identified a need and kind of pounced on it. But yeah. How long has Scripted been going then in its current form? Uh, since 2011. Okay. Now, I understand that you were actually a writer for Scripted on their books before becoming an internal employee. So, just tell us a little bit about your story. Um, what kind of writer were you before? Why did you decide to uh, use Scripted as a writer? Well, actually, yeah, I, um, I started writing for um, Scripted. See, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, and um, I, you know, found out about Scripted through a friend. Um, I, you know, was working full time as a writer and editor at an art school at the time, but you know, I was always looking for side projects, you know, ways to save money, um, you know, basically build up a travel fund. Um, so when I found out about Scripted, I was I was really excited about the opportunity because you know I was you know qualified to write um, in different verticals, lifestyle and travel, education. Um, art and design. So really the topics that, you know, I have a background in and that interested me. Um, so I, you know, wrote for Scripted for uh, about a year and a quarter and would in fact still be, you know, writing for them if I weren't working for the internal <laughs> team. But, um, you know, it's, it was really just a great, a great system. Um, I, you know, could write on my own time, um, which was, you know, usually one or, you know, one weekend morning, or sometimes, you know, an evening after work. Um, and, you know, I could claim as many or as few jobs as I was able to during a week. So it was really nice and flexible. And, um, you know, working with um, with the staff here was awesome. You know, I, I had these email relationships with people um, with whom I, I now work in person. And, um, you know, everyone is, is just as friendly in person as they were via email. So it, it was really a great experience, which is, you know, what prompted me to, to you know, approach Ryan and, um, you know, apply to one of the, the full-time positions here. 
So I understand that um, the average blog post it would be, say, 450 words. But within that 450 words, uh, the brief could come from a client and it could be really simple, like, you know, how to whip up a chocolate brownie, which is not, which is no big deal for somebody who is a chocolate brownie specialist. Or it could be a heavily briefed um, blog post on, you know, researching the various CRM, customer relationship management systems out there and and providing an analysis on which one is the best or a recommendation, what level of detail is typically provided in the brief from the client? So um, that's actually a really good question. Um, all of our, our clients um, provide really detailed guidelines for our writers. Um, you know, for example, uh, whether research is required, if it is required, how much, um, you know, how to cite sources, whether imagery is needed, um, the intended audience, the desired tone, um, you know, examples of, of other work on which to base, um, you know, base the writing. So um, clients actually provide very detailed um, briefs or guidelines for our writers. Um, and just to touch on, you know, the topic of research, um, we do have, you know, quite a range of, of jobs um, in terms of, you know, research required. Um, some of our projects are quite research heavy. Um, you know, clients will request multiple sources, um, you know, things cited in a certain way, um, whereas other projects are much more impressionistic or, um, you know, subjective and that they, they really draw more on the writer's experience. So um, the nice thing is, you know, some of our writers are really into research. They have a background in that and that's, you know, kind of what, what their passion is. Um, and, you know, other writers, of course, aren't. But um, the nice thing is, is that writers are able to choose uh, jobs that meet their, um, you know, their expertise and also their, um, their research preferences. But um, our, our clients do provide very detailed guidelines for our writers. And so can you just maybe like look up your um, editorial schedule now or and, and tell us perhaps three typical types of posts or articles that might be put out there for writers, just so our listeners can get an idea of the variety or, or the kinds of things that they might be able to choose from? Sure. So, um, you know, in terms of technology articles, um, I just read a really great post um, about lean versus agile development, kind of breaking that down for people who might not be familiar with that. Um, in terms of, you know, lifestyle travel, we have a lot of great posts, you know, um, recipe development, um, you know, money-saving uh, techniques for, for new moms. Um, and also, we, we currently have a lot of, um, you know, requests for uh, place descriptions and city guides and, you know, really drawing on writers' uh, familiarity with different geographical areas and, um, and you know, descriptive skills. Um, and in terms of business, you mentioned, you know, customer relationship um, tools, management earlier. We have, we have a lot of posts about those types of things. So, um, you know, basically, you know, it, it varies a lot based on vertical, but um, whether a writer is more descriptive or uh, more factual, um, we, you know, we'll have something for them. How long does a writer have to turn around uh, a job? Um, it actually depends on the type of job. Um, usually uh, five days, but um, some of our jobs, um, superhero jobs, actually are turned around uh, much more quickly. And those, you know, those are um, not not as common. But you know, if for whatever reason someone cannot complete a job, um, you know, the job will be reassigned, and that you know has a much shorter deadline. Of course, if if writers um, are able to submit work early. Um, they get um, bonus points in a manner of speaking. So we, we always encourage writers to submit early if possible. And do you get paid extra if you do a superhero job or if you do one that requires a quick turnaround? Um, yeah, there are, there are additional measures of um, compensation. Um, 
In terms of payment, um, that's really just determined by um, the type of job, the writer's um, skill level, the client, and things of that nature. But um, with superhero jobs, writers can um, improve their, their writer score. So there's a, there's a different measure of compensation for that. Do you have writers from all different countries, uh, including Australia, and how do you measure their, their writing quality? How do you determine you know, whether they're okay to, to be on your books? Well, we have um, a pretty interesting uh, application process. Um, it begins with um, a writer coming to our site, registering. Um, there's um, initially an English proficiency test after which um, writers submit a specialty application, and specialty is just our, our way of saying topic area. Um, and then specialty applications are uh, reviewed by our peer review board, um, and we currently have an acceptance rate of 18%. So, um, you know, people who are reviewing specialty applications already are proven to have knowledge of that area. Um, in terms of where our writers are from, um, you know, the vast majority of our writers do live in the United States, although we do have um, a good number of Australian writers, Canadian writers, and writers from other uh, English-speaking countries. So, pretty diverse group. And so, what kind of volumes do you do? Do you have any writers who are likely to get their full-time income through Scripted? Uh, writers, you know, use Scripted as a supplementary income source. Um, I've actually called a number of writers, just, you know, interviewing them, talking to them, seeing what their experience is like. Um, and, you know, writers um, often will tell me that they use Scripted as a way of, um, you know, bolstering their retirement fund or paying down student loans or saving for vacation, things of that nature. Um, in terms of job volumes, we currently have hundreds of jobs available, um, and we're only expecting that to grow. That's what we've, you know, we've we've seen increased demand for jobs, but we currently have several hundred jobs available. Mm. And um, there's. Let's get down to brass tacks now and talk about the rate because, I mean, you, you display all of the rates on your website, which is at scripted.com. And if you look under pricing, it says here, now this is an interesting, going to be an interesting conversation because in Australia, there's a lot of discussion about what uh, writers get paid and whether that amount is being driven down by just the sheer fact that it's a lot easier to find writers these days and also, um, you you know, providers like yourselves. Um, on your website, we've got that standard blog posts, which I assume are about 450 words, are $49. Is that what the um, writer gets or did you obviously take a bit of that and then the writer gets the balance? Right. So, the, the rates displayed on our website are um, the, the business rates, so what, what the client would pay for different um, forms of work. So, our writers um, actually, um, they receive a um, a portion of that, and you know, we really we have taken into consideration rates. Um, it's something that's very important to us, and we you know we know that um, most of our writers, are, you know, try to make a, a living from freelance writing. Um, you know, it's it's their craft. Um, it's something that's extremely important to them. So, um, you know, I, I understand why the discussion of rates is is so hotly um, discussed. Um, so, I mean, basically, the way our, our rates are determined, you know, um, they take into account. Um, basically the technical nature of a project, um, a writer's expertise and experience, um, things of that nature. So more more complex or technical projects uh, will command higher rates. Um, simpler projects, shorter projects will, you know, have lower rates. Um, and also we have a pool of expert writers who have demonstrated uh, deep knowledge of, of niche topics um, and the ability to target, um, you know, very specific audiences. And, and expert writers actually receive higher rates because of the more complex nature of the work. So, um 
So no, what you're saying is expert writers would receive more than, say, the standard rate here, which is currently 49? Uh, yes, that is correct. So expert writers do, you know, um, do earn more for expert jobs than for um, the general jobs. Okay, so here, uh, just so that listeners can get an idea, standard blog posts are $49, and these are US dollars. Website pages are $69. White papers are $299. Tweets are $2. And Facebook posts, $3. Or long blog posts are $59 and email newsletters, $49. Now, you mentioned that writers get a proportion of that. So, for the writers, it's because it's mainly writers who are listening to this. Um, mm-hmm. What are they likely to receive, say, for a standard blog post? Well, for a standard blog post, um, you know, we um, we don't go lower than um, five cents per word. Um, five, you know, five cents per word is the um, you know the minimum threshold. Um, for more complicated projects, we actually go up to twenty five cents a word. So, depending on you know the, the complex, uh, I guess, complex factors, client, writer experience, um, vertical things of that nature, it will fall between that range. So, um, I wish I could offer you know a, a more concrete answer, but it really does depend on um, the client, the form of work, um, you know, the subject matter, um, how much research is involved. But, um, you know, we, we um, never go below five cents per word because, you know, we, we recognize that, um, you know, clients are willing to pay more for high quality content. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, in order to keep writers going, we need to offer them higher rates. So, so would it be safe to say that something that's five cents a word is something that is no research? Like, you know, it's like pure opinion or... You know, I, I hesitate to say no research just because, you know, there might be that job that requires a little bit of research. But, um, I mean, certainly, um, you know, something that's that's five cents a word is less complex in nature, you know, probably probably requires less research than, um, say, a white paper, you know, which by its very nature requires research and um, source citation and things of that nature. So, um, I mean, I guess to answer the question, we, you know, um, there is, you know, a relationship between job complexity and, and the rate. Sure. So in Australia, the Media um, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, which is kind of like the Journalists' Union, um, says that rates should be around about, you know, and I must admit I haven't looked it up lately, but um, it should be around about 85 cents a word. Um, and most standard rates are around 50 cents to a dollar. Um do you what what would your response to that be because I know that a lot of listeners would probably be thinking oh my goodness like 5 cents a word it's it's nothing like what it you know it should be what would your um response to that be I guess my first response would be to um get more information about um the types of jobs for which those rates um apply or to which those rates apply. So, I mean, does that, do those, you know, rates uh, apply to, you know, for example, a, a short blog post or would that be more of, you know, a long um, article along here in, you know, Harper's or the New Yorker or something like that? Um, I mean, I think without context, it's difficult to um, really, you know, consider, consider rates um, because, you know, certainly, I mean, we, you know, some some, you know, world-renowned publications um, might offer 85 cents a word. Um, but I think, you know, it's kind of a different ballgame. So I guess I'm, I can't really respond to that um, without knowing about knowing more of the context of, you know, to what. Sure, I know. I've put you on the spot because you're not necessarily familiar with the Australian market. Um, I think that – do you think that perhaps it, there are – 
Uh, do you have put it this way? Do you have many journalists on your books, or are they typically bloggers who have an interest in and and passion and expertise in a particular area? We actually um we, ha- we do have some journalists um, on our books, and we I mean we have a lot of bloggers. We also have um you know people who have expertise in a certain profession, uh, you know, dentistry or you know horticulture or something like that, and they've always had um, kind of an interest interest in writing and you know a passion for writing, and th- this is their um, their way of developing that skill or you know exercising that skill. So it's uh, it's a pretty diverse group actually, but um, yet we do have some journalists, um, people who have you know written for San Francisco and national publications, um, and you know have you know for whatever reason gotten out of print journalism and are now. Um, you know, writing for different media, but would they uh, be the majority or the minority? You know, it's um, probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, I wouldn't say they're the majority, but you know, there are a fair number of journalists and and ex journalists. So um, I don't have the hard numbers on that um, with me right now, but um, you know, I'd probably say in the middle. Okay, so it sounds to me from what you're saying that scripted is sort of like um, a good opportunity. It may not be the idea ideal solution for somebody who wants to earn a full-time income, but it's an it's a good supplementary solution for somebody who's already earning an income through some other means, whether that be as a writer or as a dentist, as you say, <laughs> but wants to supplement their income potentially with, you know, writing about their particular passions or interests. You know, I think that's that's a really good characterization. Um, you know, we uh, our job volume varies week to week based on you know what clients are requesting. Um, you know, we can't guarantee the same amount of work every day. So I think you know for that reason we can, you know we don't advertise ourselves as um, you know a way for writers to make um, a full you know full time income. But that said, um, we are an excellent way to um, to supplement your income and. Um, and then that's, you know, that's definitely how I engaged with Scripted before joining the internal team. So that's, I think that's the great way of putting it. Now, it's been going since 2011. And I, I, since then, I've certainly seen the world of content marketing grow and grow with more and more brands wanting to produce content for their websites or whatever. Can you give us an idea of your growth? Um, you know, whether that's in terms of volume of jobs per day or, you know, headcount or whatever, just so that we can understand, you know, how quickly this sector is growing? Well, in terms of um, number of, of jobs per day, I mean, I've actually, I've only been here um, a few months, so I'm not totally sure what what um, things were like at the very beginning. But um, just since I've started, um, we've seen writer applications um, double in the past three months, you know, people applying to specialties. So that's one measure I can give. Um, I mean, just since I started um, working with the internal team, we've seen that number um, just about double. So, I mean, it's it's really exciting. You know, we're seeing more and more writers um, expressing interest for working with us. And but is there um, also double the number of client jobs? Um, you know, I don't. I can't really comment on the uh, the correlation between those two. I mean, we, we are seeing um, a huge increase in the number of client jobs, but it, um, you know how that relates to our writer writer base. I can't really comment on that, um, but we are seeing a huge increase um, in the number of of client jobs as well. Okay, great. Um, so uh, certainly an interesting service, and you know, Scripted isn't the only provider of its kind out there, but um, it's certainly one kind of. Um, matching service that has emerged over the last few years. So thank you very much for your time today, Kate. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, Just thank you for uh, taking the opportunity to interview me and, um, you know, it's, it's been great talking. Wonderful. Thanks for your time. 
Well, that was certainly interesting, Val. Do you think it's going to work? Well, um, I think that the business model will work. I'm not sure how many writers will will jump on board um, at that rate of pay. But I think that one of the things that, you know, we touched on, as you heard, was that it may be a useful avenue for people who aren't writers. You know, they might have full-time jobs as dentists or chiropractors or, or bakers or something, but want to do a little bit of writing and get some pocket money on the side. So it's probably uh, more suited to, to those people, sort of for pocket money, but I don't see how writers will be able to sustain an income um, at those rates. Uh, so no, it, it, I mean, it's, it's about volume, isn't it? Like if you're mm. going to be a writer like that, it's about volume. Um, you need to do a lot of very, very quick articles. Mm. Um, so it would help to have expertise in the area. And I think that it's also the kind of thing that I know that um, it can be easy to fall into the trap of, of starting to do that kind of work and then getting stuck in it. Yeah. So if you're really wanting to build a byline or a career as a freelancer, you need to think pretty long and hard about how much of your time you're going to give to something like that. Mm, definitely. So what have we asked our community this week? Well, we went through to the eternal question that all fiction writers come across at some point, and that is, are you a plotter and planner, or are you someone who writes by the seat of your pants? Mm. And generally speaking, authors will fall into one of those two camps. Um, so the question was asked, and as I sort of expected, three quarters of of the answers said that they start with an idea and they start writing and off they go because it's very, I often find rare that um, people will say, no, 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 I plot the entire thing out. Now, I know several professional writers who work like that and I have to say, uh, when I say like, work like that, who actually plot everything out, like mm -hmm. um, Kylie Ladd is quite open about the fact that she uses a spreadsheet <laughs> to actually keep track of where everyone is at, at all different times. Mm -hmm. Alison Rushby has a beat sheet that she uses to make sure that she hits the points of her three or five, whatever act structure, mm -hmm. um, exactly when she wants to, exactly the right scene at the right time. Um, now, I probably four or five years ago would have said that I was definitely a pantser. I was someone who started with a sentence and just kept writing and writing and writing until I got to the end. But I have to say that over the years that I have been really focusing on fiction and, and working really hard at it, I have become a lot more of a planner than I used to be, mm -hmm. which surprises me because I'm not really a planner type. But I have found particularly with the um, writing of this series that, you know what, you have to be. <laughs> Yeah, just, it's very, very hard to manage um, a lot of books and the same characters and know where people are and what they're doing. And I remember seeing one floating around the internet somewhere, and I will find a picture of it um, to post. There is a picture of one of J.K. Rowling's um, spread, uh, not a spreadsheet, it's a hand-drawn thing. Oh, yes. and it's how she plotted out uh, book five, I think, of her series. And it has all the characters listed. It has times and dates and it's where everybody is at mm. that particular time on that particular day when something major is happening so that she can keep track of everyone. And I, I think it's, um, you know, that I think it's something that you do probably come more to the more that you write. I think you become more of a planner, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay, what about you? I guess with, your, with non-fiction, you tend to go with a plan? 
Definitely. With nonfiction, I definitely am a plan and a, a planner. But I suspect that if I wrote fiction, I would also be a planner. I just couldn't handle the anxiety of not knowing where the story was going. I know that that's all part of the creative process and you should kind of write as the spirit moves you and let your pen be led. However... Um, I and and I can I do a little bit of that when I'm going through periods of my life when I'm doing morning pages, you know, like the artist's way um, suggests that you do write your three pages uh, every morning. So I do have periods where I do that, but if I'm writing an actual book, I probably need to plan it out. Well, it's interesting though because I mean, as I say, I do I do a lot more outlining than I used to. Um, I definitely don't. I, I, I'm definitely not someone who has a spreadsheet and a scene plan and a you know all that sort of stuff. Um, and I actually found I was writing um, the last bat book to a, to an outline, and I got to a point in the story, and I just thought this is not going to work. Mm. This outline is not going to work, mm. and I sort of had to move around it. And, and I think that that's that's what you kind of have to do too. Is you have to be you, you've got to write where the characters take you. And if the characters aren't going in the direction you want, then maybe you just need to change the direction. But I do remember having a particularly bad moment a few years ago. I was writing um, an adult novel, um, the second one that I did, um, and it. I'd written the end. I had to write the ending of it mm. to find out what – I had to know that I could resolve it because I'd got to a particular point in the plot and I thought, oh, am I actually going to be able to make this work? I don't want to get to 85,000 words and realise the whole thing's wrong. Mm. So I wrote the ending of it and then I completely lost interest in the book. <laughs> I just – because I knew what was going to happen and, and it was it was just – a bit like oh well okay now I know what's going to happen do I care enough to actually finish writing the story and I had to I had a break from it for a good 12 months I reckon before Ooh. I went back to it and reworked it and and got you know got through it and the ending changed a bit and that was okay and but it I honestly completely lost interest and I think that that's something that you kind of if you are a right by the seat of your pants kind of girl yeah. you do have to like guard against that a little bit so anyway that was just my experience I must admit even with my non-fiction if even if I, I do tend to like to know the ending uh, even before I start and it gives me a kind of a sense of security but I have to admit I don't let myself write it because it's 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 that build up it's that anticipation of actually writing the whole thing and then finishing with that flourish finishing it with that big you know big applause at the end that I love because at the end when I finally write that final sentence and I know that that's it I have to say there is no greater feeling so it's a little bit like you know the climax of your writing it's like your yes <laughs> and it's at the it's, end yeah it's great but look both of you and I work from home and there's been an interesting article on Fast Company on um, how to make working from home more productive and it's got various tips and we'll put the link in the show notes um you know, and there's various things that are really obvious, in my opinion, like separating your workspace from your family space and making sure that you stick to a schedule, that kind of thing. But what would be your top tip for writing from home? Well, I first of all, turn off the TV. I think that that's something that a lot of people, um, you know, like I, I never, 
ever, not even if I'm eating lunch, not at any stage of my day do I turn the television on or, you know, even um, I, I don't even, to be honest with you, when I take a lunch break, which I rarely do because I have a fairly truncated day due to school hours, um, I will often sit at my computer and do social media stuff or, or get some of those sorts of things out the way. I don't ever really actually sit down and relax into being at home. Mm. But I think from my perspective, my biggest thing is to ignore the house, ignore what, you know, because, um, you know, obviously I live at home with a family mm. and I would actually like to live at home by myself because at least that way I know that when I cleaned a room, it stayed that way. Yes. But the thing that it is so easy to get distracted by, I'll just make the beds and then I'll just do this and I'll just do that. And by the end of the day, mm. you're cleaning the oven, yep. anything to avoid sitting down and writing. Yep. So I think that that is something like close the door If you and I really have to do that. And that is something that you need to um, also if you live with a partner and this is something, I mean, my husband and I have been married for a long time now. Um, but when we first started living together and I was working from home, it was, it was a very clear, I will not not be washing the dishes while I am working. I will not be. So when you come home, do not ask me what I've been doing all day. Mm. We are not going to have that conversation. So that's the kind of thing I think that sort of stuff, the separating of your home life from your work life has to be made on all levels. Yeah, definitely. And also helping your friends understand your boundaries because I know that when I first started freelancing and working from home, I would have some friends that would just pop over for a cup of tea in the middle of the day because they mm. just thought I would be free to to have mm. a chat for two hours. And they had I had to kind of get them to understand that even though I'm working from home, I'm actually working, so I can't afford to, a drop-in like that. Um, yeah, that's right. But I have to say I think that the last tip – on the Fast Company story is probably one of my favourites, create a commute. And mm. I think that that sort of thing of, you know, I think you and I were talking a few weeks ago about we don't really feel like the workday started until we bought a coffee. Mm. And I think that that is something that, you know, those little rituals that you do, like I walk my children to school, drop them off, walk down the street, get myself a coffee, come home. And when I walk back in the door, I know I'm coming back to work. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that that's important. It's whether you get dressed or whether you like whatever. I mean, you know, I joke about working in my pajamas, but I don't because I have to walk my children to school and that is not a good look. So, you know, it's important to get dressed and be and treat it like a job. A friend of mine used to get into his car, back out of the driveway, drive around the block and drive back into his driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, honey, I'm home. <laughs> Every week. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Just so that he could feel like he was, you know, coming to work. But anyway, that brings us to the end of our podcast for this episode. Where, if people want to find out more about you, Al, where can they go? They will find me at alisontate.com and from there they will find me at my various social media hangouts because one thing I do know as a freelancer answer is that it's important to talk to people during the day and Twitter and Facebook are my friends for that. And how do people find out more about the Pink Fibro Book Club? Uh, well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it, it's there's a Facebook group which you can uh, find quite easily and it's also on my uh, website. 
Great. And I'm at ValerieKoo.com and we would love to hear from you if you have any questions or, or issues you'd like us to cover, then email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. We'd also love it if you could leave a review on iTunes. There are some reviews on there and we're thrilled with them. So, And thank you everyone also for your support. We've been so excited to be featured in the new and notable section of iTunes, but also to be the number one writing and literature podcast in Australia and I think earlier this week we reached number 50 of all iTunes uh, of all podcasts in Australia on the iTunes chart so thank you Um, thank you very much and until next time we'll see you later bye bye